Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode number 29, uh, brought to you by Phantom Bill Stickers, and uh, we've got to thank Lafare, who give us coffee, and Yesty Boys, who provide us with some beer as well. But this episode is... Um, as an international episode, I, I recorded this, I was away on holiday last month and uh, I wanted to record a couple of podcasts while I was away if I could, so this is uh, me coming to you for the first time from San Francisco and I'm chatting with Sylvie Simmons, you probably know that name, hopefully you know that name, she's a, um, she's a music writer, uh, a famous music writer, um, best known in the last few years for writing the best biography of Leonard Cohen that's on the market, she's also written a great book you should read if you haven't about Serge Gainsbourg she's also written a, a book of short stories fiction and um, and she's written a book about Neil Young one of many books about Neil Young obviously um, but she's she's covered it all I mean she's in the 70s she was the queen of heavy metal and uh, you know she went on the tour bus with uh, Black Sabbath when they introduced Van Halen to the world um, she helped uh, announce to the world bands like helped hype and promote and introduce bands like Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses so um, she's got a hell of a story and then of course in more recent years she's been really well known as the Americana columnist for Mojo magazine um, so she's sort of written for everyone written about everyone uh, and then post Leonard Cohen biography she's she's um, had a music career of her own she's released an, an album you'll hear a couple of songs from that uh, in the podcast um, she plays ukulele sings writes songs, um, she's working on another album, um, and yeah, sort of ever since she did the Leonard Cohen book, she's been cruising around the world um, as part of the book tour, she's been cruising around um, doing songs, you know, as part of the, it started off as part of the selling of the book, I guess, and then it turned into shows of her actually performing music concerts, which she's still doing. Um, so she's still working on music writing, still working on music. Um, now, I met Sylvie four years ago when I first went to San Francisco. Um, I'd, I'd grown up reading her stuff. I was a fan and I contacted her. I didn't actually know that she lived in, in San Francisco and was right near where we were staying. I just had some time off and was in America and was hoping to connect with her to you know maybe email interview her. Well, a few minutes later, she... Uh, she replied and gave me her phone number and then I was talking to her on the phone and the next day I went around and had a cup of tea and, and met with her. This was when she was still working on the Leonard Cohen book. She um, she loaned me some copies of some of her work. She gave me um, access to some interviews she'd done with Neil Finn when I was because I was working on a book myself So at the time. So yeah, we sort of formed this friendship and a year later after that she was in New Zealand doing... Um, doing publicity for the Leonard Cohen for the Leonard Cohen book. So I I um I interviewed her on stage and she ended up staying the night at our house. Someone someone that was booking her flights got it wrong and she was stranded in Wellington for the night. So she stayed with us. I then bumped into her in, in Sydney a few days later at, at, at the Vivid Festival and we, we shared seats um, next to each other at a Craftwork concert. So I mentioned this stuff, some of this stuff comes up in the podcast. This is, uh, this is how I've got to, to know Sylvie, who was always one of my writing heroes. So it's, it's, it's been really fun forming a friendship with her. So I contacted her when we were heading back to the States this time and said, you know, I'd love to, obviously love to come and visit and um, let's have a chat and record it if we can because obviously she's, I've heard some of these stories before um, but uh, they're, they're, they're well worth hearing and, and, and she's a, a great host and, and, a, and a great storyteller and, and a, a good friend and a really great talent. So, um, yeah, I hope you like this one. This is me chatting with Sylvie Simmons. You're so cool, you're so kind 
You know what you've got so new at recording things that I kind of um, I still want to watch it happen like I need to sit and have it I need to look and go is that recording I'm the same when I'm recording interviews I have to see I still use cassette tapes so. you still use yeah. tapes still so well, I can watch them move yeah yeah right because you don't trust the digital huh? counter stick with what you know so when did you, well when did you record your very first interviews how you know well, my first interviews were on huge tape recorders. I saw a picture of myself with one once. They were <laughs> almost like the early computers, a whole room in this tape recorder. A backing, a backing team that brings them in. <laughs> yeah, my personal slaves <laughs> carrying them in the room. Yeah, this huge tape recorder. It probably gave me great muscles carrying it around. When did I record it? And the first time that I did interviews, I think. So it would have been in 77. Do you remember your very first interview? The very first person, or was it there were a bunch of them? There were a bunch pretty much at the same time. I'd done a couple of interviews in England for a pop magazine, and I don't remember taping those. I think that, you know, nobody really cared whether they were yeah, yeah. truthful or not, and they weren't exactly deep, intensely meaningful yeah. questions. More like, hey, David Bowie, what kind of girls do you go out with? But um, once I started doing proper <laughs> grown up like profile, as if you things, could use yeah. grown up in being a rock writer, but doing real interviews, in-depth interviews, I taped them all because you couldn't write that fast. So I think it might possibly have been either Muddy Waters, who I was interviewing because he was doing an album with John Winnie. Oh yeah, I remember that. That was one of the first ones, or Steely Dan, who were in 1977 promoting Asia. Yeah. And I just arrived in... in, uh, LA where I was living then, where I moved to from London, I'd gone out there and within sort of a week or so I'd just heard a whole bunch of interviews, one after the next, and I think those were probably the first two. Wow. So Willie DeVille was another one. Yeah. I loved yeah. Willie DeVille. Cool. And, and have you got any concept of how many people you've talked to on the record about records? Like, do you have, did you ever start a list or keep, you know, some sort of index... Because I know, I mean, I've seen your, you know, typed up transcripts. You've you've got lots of the material that, you you know, you did. But do you have some figure in your head of... Absolutely not. (laughs) Funnily enough, I've got this thing, a little black book. It started in 1978 and I only kept it because um, it was really just to make sure I got paid for interviews. Yeah. At that time, I was like a little kind of writing machine and writing not just for Sounds in England, which was my first rock magazine that I wrote for, first job in a way as a freelance, but um, also for American magazines and stuff in Germany and Japan. Yeah. And so it was kind of hard to keep track of whether you were being paid yeah. sort of, you know, your tiny little amount of money, which all added up to being enough to live like a sort of very impoverished student for yeah. a while. <laughs> and so I kept down this list which just said the name of the person I'd interviewed or reviewed or live or whatever, who I'd written it for, what the length was, and there was a little space for me to tick if it had been paid. Yeah. Or there was a date on it. Yeah. So this book it is huge. Yeah. And it was remarkable when I'd opened some pages and maybe I can bring it in like and open yeah. a random page if you like. Yeah. Can I pause for a second? Are no, I'll ready? just I'll leave it running and You should have come over I guess that it's too late now But it's always hard to know When you're around Been meaning to call you See how you're doing 
because you were on my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I can only kind of tell you what date it is. Yeah. So I turn some pages back off. Oh, wow, look at it. Okay. <laughs> this is 2002, so it's fairly recent. Yeah. Brian Wilson, Landshop, Manic Street Preachers, Johnny Dowd, Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> Looks like it says Kev Russell. Ken Russell. <laughs> Ken Russell. The Long Riders, Brian Wilson, Marianne Faithful Live, Marianne Faithful Interview. Brian Wilson interview, Tom Waits lead review, Lemmy interview, Serge Gansborg article for a magazine called Erotic Review, that's a new one, <laughs> The Radar Brothers, Little Feet, Mary Gautier, that's on that page, Arthur Lee of Love, I did an interview yeah. with him, and so it goes on, you know, Neil Young, it's down there, J.J. Wow. Kale, Steve Earle, so... Wow. That was a random page from 2002. Yeah. It was a little bit more kind of shambled with, with Nita writing in the early days. So, yeah. It looks like Anne Frank's diary or something. You know, like. <laughs> it's kind of like that, you know. Except there wasn't cold up in an attic bit in some sleazy bar eating free peanuts and yeah, drinking you, lots of free drinks to keep myself alive. You didn't have it quite as good as her. No, but look how my writing was. Wow. Like. This yeah. is what happens when disillusion settles in. You know, writing <laughs> becomes as degenerate. It's a kind of, I guess, like the Dorian Gray so picture. Is that where does that go up to? That goes up until just this year, which wow. has been a sad kind of state of affairs because almost everybody that I've written about this year has died. Yeah. And uh, they didn't die because I interviewed them. They died before. I'd written about them in the yeah. previous interviews that mm. have been kind of put so back how, together. How are you sort of feeling about that? Like, uh, it's 2016 has been the year of the, you know, dying heroes for so many people, right? Like, not just music, you know, pop culture, all these things we grow up with. It's It really hurts me to the very core. I mean, it started really for me with Lemmy's death, yes. Lemmy Motorhead was really interesting. Lenny was a friend of mine and I realised as I was reading various obituaries that he was friends of lots of people and mm. no, admittedly it's like everybody's claim, claiming that they were at the small club that Sex mm. Pistol did their first show at in mm. Islington. Well, actually it was in a cinema in Islington but um, it's terrible being a music journalist. <laughs> you have to get everything damn right. Sorry, I'll slap myself so you don't need to. But everybody claims friendship but I believe it was probably true that there was something about Lenny that he was just very giving and very kind of gracious and open and friendly with mm. people. And so when he died, it was a horrible shock and a really great sadness. And so I'd go back and actually look at my interviews. It was quite odd. It was almost like going back, looking at old photographs yeah, exactly. if a relation died. Well, that's your connection to the friendship with him, in a sense, or part, you know, part of, right? Like that's is. how the friendship's formed. And in a way, there's that, that filing cabinet, or those mm. filing cabinets full of Plural. stuff, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and all the stuff that's digital as well, damn it. I um, wish I had printed it all off. Mm. But all of those things, in a way, were like my photo albums. Yeah. And so I was going back and actually writing this big, long piece on Infomoja, and just like every, well, not exactly page, but every keypad was, was tear-stained. It was yeah. very unhappy. Yeah. And then it kept on coming, David Bowie. Prince, you know, in between yeah. people like Glenn Frey, who are interviewed. Yeah, so I was going to say, all of those, know. all of those names, you, they're all people you've interviewed. Ralph Stanley yeah. just recently, yes, yeah. one after the next. Yeah. And deadlines taken on a whole new meaning. And, you know? and, you know, like I, 
I have some feeling about all of those things because I've written about most of those people or, or listened to their music. And so do people who don't even write about music. They, they feel they own a part of that person mm -hmm. because it's helped them discover a little bit about who they are, right? Mm -hmm. Like that music. So it's been a, yeah, I, just, I was interested to get your thoughts on, and have you been, have you had to write sort of obituaries and eulogy posts about all of those people or... That I'm, seems to be most of my job right yeah, now. You know, yeah, because I've been... This was Ralph Stanley. Because mm, um, I've been feeling a little bit like that. Like I, every time a rock star or a musician dies, you know, a radio station calls. And it, it, on the one hand, it feels a little bit ugly. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you think, oh, well, this is quite nice. So I get to sort of put some of this useless information that I've stored out into the world and obviously other people want to hear it. But I, don't, I haven't quite worked out how I feel about it. And I thought of I've thought of you a few times this year. Going, <laughs> you must have not only far more um, writing on talking about it and writing about it, but also you've met these people. So you actually have, or you've or you've at least talked to them. You know, you have mm -hmm. a, a first hand connection with them. Yeah, with all of those I've met them. That's Most right. Of the interviews yeah. I've done in my life have been in person. Yeah, and I think I was just very lucky because. I was. I started at a time and worked in in cities where you got access. So London, yeah, yeah, and uh, LA, especially. Yeah. They were where everyone, coming. yeah, they're always always there. And they didn't think of doing stuff on the front. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just you know they had a day where they just sat in a room, or in a hotel or a record company office. Yeah. And it would be one after the next. Or you got, or you got sent to visit them because someone was picking up the tab for that later on. You know, that like was a little the bit other of that. Thing. The thing yeah. We used to call it the leg. Yeah. The leg was the most wondrous thing because they'd stick you on a plane and if you were being very lazy and hungover and you couldn't get to the flight, they'd just put you on another plane, which again sounds so weird because now there are no other planes. Yeah. You don't get that one plane that will be full of people, you're just uh, yeah. basically. Yeah. So you've had this fascinating career that continues as a music writer, but somewhere about, and we'll go, we'll go, we'll, we'll go back again and talk a bit more about the early days, but... You're a sort of a you're a touring musician now. You're a rock star <laughs> I'm yourself, a rock star, baby. and this has been happening for uh, in the time that I've since I first met you. I guess just after that. So this has been happening for getting towards half a decade. I mean, you you've always played music for a long time in that, but um, really the last three or four years, you you've been a touring musician, right? Like you've been out yeah. there, out there, in an international internationally touring and regarded and recognised musician which is crazy because you must it be just crazy. you must be I mean there are always stories about you know musicians who started off as rock writers there are a few few famous people um, there are some really great musicians who can pen really wonderful pieces about um, music but you have a music career that you perhaps didn't go into this for at all and it's happened it's absolutely <laughs> shocking and absolutely amazing and absolutely delightful, yeah. all in equal measures. And uh, yeah, it's weird. I mean, Chrissy Hind was a rock writer before she was yeah. making records, and Patti Smith did some rock writing when she was a poet before, mm. mostly before the music came along, or certainly in parallel. Mm. But you know, they didn't take that long to make the switch. I yeah. took four decades. <laughs> I guess like just took a while to get over the kind of the stage fright that stopped me in the first place. And I'm glad that I did because if I'd have started being a rock star when I was young, A I would have been even more degenerate than I am now. Mm. But but B I think that 
it would have been awful because my songs I wrote back when I was 16 were so bad. They were all in like two minor chords with the like entire most, song. Like most people, sixteen-year-old And I didn't songs. know about reverb then, so I couldn't have been like some really kind of like yeah. twee little Americana artist or something where they just put yeah. the voice in an echo <laughs> and they just play two droney chords. But I just got terrified on stage, just froze in the spotlight. And the old cliche is, if you can't play music, you write about it. And so mm. I was entirely the cliche. Mm. totally and I just used to play music not even that much in the beginning I mean I gave up I gave up but over recent de- decades it started coming back and I started playing mostly because I've got a ukulele mm. had a ukulele given to me in 2005 and then from about 2006 on I just started writing songs on it and musician friends would kind of say hey you've got to record them mm. and I guess finally after touring with the Leonard Cohen book, which is where I met you, and I yes. was singing on that tour, I was singing Leonard Cohen songs like a little human jukebox of Leonard. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad he just got one of those. Somebody <laughs> needs to do it. And I guess at the end of that, I got over any even traces of, mm. of uh, stage fright. So I made the album, and it's been <laughs> all now, since then. And now is the pressure to follow up the album? If not externally from yourself, are you you know are you like need to need to get a second album? I've got it. Don't want to be a one hit wonder. <laughs> uh, ten, uh, ten songs written already for the next album and a few leftovers, but uh, so yeah. now yeah you've got and an I've album. I've got two album deals, so yeah. I have to do another right. album. But uh, so it's going to happen. It's going to happen, but I think next year because I've just got so much going on in the writing world right now. And I don't yeah. think the world is really waiting for the album maybe a few people yeah there'll be a few people but you're you know but you've you've so you've got you've had a little bit not not a not a complete break from writing you're always doing your writing while you're on the road and in between shows and recording and that but you i'm reviewing myself i'm jumping (laughs) genius i was just gonna i was just gonna say this story is really disconcerting because you're (laughs) because you're like um Everyone says to me and, you know, to other people, uh, you're just a failed musician. And, you know, that's all, you know, no one no one ever built a statue for a critic. And I spent 20 years... I, 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 well, I've spent 20 years trying to argue against that and say, well, actually, there's a statue of T.S. Eliot and he was a critic and, no, I'm not trying to be a musician. And, and you've just debunked all of that by saying, I did want to be a musician, I couldn't do it, I did get into writing and then you did that long enough that now you're a musician as well. Your story is very worrying to <laughs> to me and most other people that try to write about music. I think, yeah. but it's they're <laughs> just completely different states of mind. I think yeah. that I have when I'm singing. I don't think what was anybody going to think about this mm. when I made the album. I didn't think what was anybody going to write. I was like a little bit afraid afterwards. In fact, probably a so terror that people would tear me apart. You did it for the right reason, then. You did it for yourself. You mean, you know, this yeah. is a mark in time of, you know, on some level, I've always wanted to do this, mm-hmm. and I, I sort of see the, I guess the album and those early shows. You know, they are linked completely to your Leonard Cohen mm-hmm. book and tour and that sort of yeah. part of your life. And that was really, I think, because I knew that well, like, there wasn't much of a book tour that the publisher had set up, i.e. none. Yeah. But um, when I set it up, I thought I might be doing stuff in record stores with friends, you know, musician friends coming along to help out. And it would be good to take an instrument and sing the songs because, of course, that's uh, 
the words of the songs are so important yeah. to Cohen's, you know, Cohen's work. And I wanted to be sort of somehow make that part of the event, you know, not yeah, just yeah. kind of read something which gets very boring, but actually present some of the stuff that made him yeah. special. And having a ukulele somehow worked with the music because it allowed space for those words to come through. I mean, you can't exactly get distracted by the sound of a ukulele. It's, yeah. it's like a kind of sparrow coughing four streets away. I mean, it's so <laughs> quiet. Um, but you, I remember when you, um, when I saw you in New Zealand, you said um, that you were so, you were kind of so caught up in the in the world of Leonard Cohen that you had had to enter into that um, as a biographer that, and then you were in the book tour. It was kind of like you didn't really have an exit strategy. It was just like, well, we'll just ride this and sort of see what happens. And you've been a an ambassador for those songs as well as for your book. But I was thinking, you know, every year there's one or two, maybe a few more really great music books for those of us who care about them. But we get over them pretty quickly and forget about them and the next lot come along. But your Leonard Cohen books already had, in the the scheme of a book world, it's already had a huge longevity about it, right? Like there's people still discovering it. There's, you know, largely glowing reviews. Um, It's... I, you know, it helps that it's about Leonard Cohen and, and, and the timing. He's a figure people were interested in and, and I think it probably helps that no one had done as good a job of, as you of trying to capture his life. But it's there's something quite magical about that project. It must be a big thing for you to live with and this, you know, it's defined a big part of your career in life, right? I'm still interviewed that's about, what, about yeah, every two weeks, exactly. I think. Well, that's um, what I've noticed on <laughs> your Facebook page. I'm like, you know, there's translations, there's new reviews, there's yeah. podcasts, interviews. I think it's, it's 19 now. Yeah. It's, it's kind of nuts, and so I'll get calls from Brazil. So when was it, just, and when was it released, 2011 or 12? 2012 it came yeah. out. It was uh, the fall of 2012. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it just keeps on going, and there's all these new reviews, and so a whole bunch more interviews. Yeah, As a result of um, the Colombian and Chilean, the South, two of the South American um, editions, I got to go out there and play. So wow. I mean, what can you, yeah. you know, what can you complain about? Yeah. So yes, it is unusual sometimes, especially as I'm deep down in somebody else's life right yeah. now. Yeah. That, you know, you suddenly have to get snatched back into the world of land. So you've written biographies before, and you're writing something again, which you just mm-hmm. mentioned, which um, will, will come out in the future. But um, this is the one that's stayed with you the longest right like you didn't get you didn't go on a bit i mean people still reference the surge book absolutely and it's, you know it's come out again and available as an ebook and it's a great book but the cohen book is the biggest thing at the moment right yeah i think that's the one yeah. that's yeah. going to be mentioned yeah when i quote you know i hope <laughs> so is yeah. are there still i mean i remember you you had wanted to do a book about tom waits and you, t- you talked about that a bit and that's not something that he sort of wants to do at this stage is that something you still think you know that's still on the wish list yeah i think if he turns up at the back door with some flowers and you know, probably <laughs> all not is forgiven because he's sober you know but a nice glass of fancy water you know yeah I'd work with him on it, for yeah, sure. Yeah. But he's a, it's very interesting, like Leonard Cohen is a very private man, a very shy man, mm. and also like Leonard, in a way he presents a certain version of himself to the public, you know, uh, 
you know, Leonard, I think when he first went on stage, uh, asked for his friend to make him a mask, a mask mm. of himself, mm. to hide behind on stage. And Waits has got that kind of character thing going for him too. And I think that in a way they don't want the mystery um, you know, given away. They don't want the, the sort of layers peeled off. Yeah. Uh, but Leonard Cohen was gracious enough to say, oh, okay then, and give me the support. And in a way, you had that too, because when you, well, you're saying when you first went, really went to the stage, you had the great mask of Leonard Cohen songs mm-hmm. to, to stand behind. Yeah. That even if you botched them, it was endearing, because he was a person who had met Cohen and written about his life, serving up his songs, and people love those words. So, you know, even if you got it wrong, you got it right. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't really planned that way. It was more a case of me thinking that I could somewhat hide behind an instrument, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Picking the world's smallest you know, one. <laughs> but I'm not exactly big. Yeah. I can almost hide behind a ukulele yeah. if it was a big ukulele. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just a feeling that if you've got this weapon, you know, something... Is that, what that, is that what that cello over there is for? The fact when you, were, when, the you were re- when you were really scared, that's what you had behind and yeah, you've moved up. Yeah, it's tiny neck and a big body, you know? <laughs> Funny instrument, but yeah, to me, I play it like a uke now. The world's biggest uke. So, well, let's. Um, th- when did the when did the first book you wrote come out? I think that was two thousand and one. Yeah. yeah. So, because I was thinking, um, I would sort of have this idea that anyone who writes uh, more than fleetingly has some sort of not expectation but some sort of vision of themselves as attending their own book launch or you know one day signing a copy or just seeing the cover I, I sort of think I did you did, did you not feel that because obviously you'd written for a long time before the book came out and I'm figuring that I don't feel that way at all I, I wanted to me it was almost like the longest feature in the whole damn world right. I was trying to get to the end to yeah. and then go back and kind of revise to try and right. make it readable because if you write something at length then mm. you know you really have to kind of at least go back and almost like change the tempo here and there or change the shape of it almost as if you're composing a piece of music you know otherwise people can just die as I often die during reading biographies (laughs) of just the sheer plodding boredom of them all but you know I I kind of I think I belong to the school of writers who felt that you should read books rather than write them Mm. and so I didn't really have any great kind of plan to write books early on plus as you can see from just that random page at 2002 yeah. they're even worse back in yeah in the sort of late 70s and 80s you're a bit I busy i was working non-stop <laughs> yeah. i was a bit busy yeah and enjoying that side of the world this sort of short form appeals to me and my idea was between biographies to do short story books and i did that between yeah, yeah, um, yeah. the gans book book and the cohen book and that was the plan i started on another yeah. Short story book. I love the short form. Uh, even though short in my world doesn't mean like 150 word yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. reviews, it means, you know, four or five thousand word pieces. Yeah. So we might see another book of short stories published one day, you reckon? Yeah, I'm hoping to do that maybe next year after yeah. the next album. I'm yeah. working on it gradually, but it's just time, you know, yeah. it seems to go faster now. Yeah, yeah. It worries me about this. Something's happened to physics or whatever. the particular discipline is that mm. includes time in it but something has really happened so you've lived here since pretty much since you came over in the late 70s no, in, in america no, no, or no. you went back not at all 
when I first moved to America, I went to LA in 77. And I landed the day that Elvis Presley died. You can't really forget that, can you? So um, I did that and then I left for 84 and went back to England again for some years about, I guess about six, seven years. Yeah. Seems to be a bit of a pattern with me. And then I moved to France, hence the Gansport Of course, book. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I moved back to England again with the occasional time in LA. And then I moved out here in 2004, which was the year that my... Uh, short story that came out. But your career really essentially hit the ground running when you hit the ground in America for the first time, right? Well, like yeah. that's that's absolutely. kind of absolutely, absolutely where it takes off. Out. And I think part of it was that in England there were actually a lot there were four weeklies. Yeah. You know, there were three that were really well known of the weekly rock press. And um, I did get in touch with all of them and I either didn't get a reply at all or they was like, We've already got a girl. Yeah, it was, you know, <laughs> we've got our quota. <laughs> we've got our girl, and so I figured, you know, you know, I was either going to have to grow a penis or I'd have to get the hell out of Dodge, and so I went to LA by complete sort of luck and chance and and good judgment of going out with somebody who got me the ticket, and I landed in LA and I, I just didn't stop after that mm. because I've done a few pop things in England, which is what the stuff I give girls really, yeah, you know. Uh, because I'd done that, I knew a couple of record companies, and this is back, children, in a time <laughs> of a thing called telly... No, I forgot what it's called. It's not even before fax. <laughs> it's so far gone from my telex. Yep. Telex, what a good name. Telex, and it was little dots and dashes and things that looked like Braille that got sent through the universe, and they could read it at the <laughs> other end, and it said, yes, Sylvie Simmons is a legitimate journalist. <laughs> this is, it was so easy back then. And yes, she can go and interview Bruce Springsteen and, and Steely Dan and all these people. Mm. And again, believe it or not, in LA there weren't many music journalists. They were all in New York or Nashville. Yeah. And so I had, you know, I had yeah, an empty pick. field. I was there, so it didn't matter what my gender was. And uh, off I went, having adventures from that second on. It's, it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about there's Sylvie Simmons, the musician now. And I like hearing that. And there's Sylvie the Leonard Cohen. The Diva, please. Yeah. Diva. And there's Sylvie the Leonard Cohen biographer. And this is how some people probably either know you or come to know you. But there's also Sylvie the Americana columnist. And the heavy metal. And girl. this is what I want to get to. As for a lot of people, and, and then there's some people who, who end up going way back to this and finding this out later, you are the heavy metal guru of, of a time and place, a very important time and place in the history of heavy metal. And then you're also interviewing Steely Dan and Prince and people that don't quite fit into one, you know, they're, they're pop, but they're not just a pop artist. Mm-hmm. So you've got this very wide um, sphere that you've operated in and around. But the heavy metal years seem to be a very crucial thing for, for you and your career as well as for the music. That was again partly an accident of time and place that I was living in LA when you know the scenes got sort of exploded in yeah. about 1980 where it all started out there. And if you're there and you're seeing you know a whole bunch of guys in stiletto heels with hair that looked like exploding Christmas trees dyed black and tottering around down the streets of, of LA and there's people following them and going to their clubs, you go. I'm yeah. a music journalist, you follow. <laughs> And so, you know, that just became another side of my life, you know, seeing the first ever sort of Motley concerts, Motley Crew concerts, and, 
you know, during the first interview with Guns N' Roses and a bit later along the line. So yeah, that was an important part. And in the beginning, I probably wasn't listening to that music very much, though. Yeah. One of the first things that Sounds had me do as well was send me on the road with Black Sabbath. So yeah, right. The year that Ozzy was about to get kicked out at the end of that tour and get to know the opening band, Van Halen, who yeah. kicked their ass on stage and, and really took over from them, in a sense, in the charts. I was doing all that stuff, but my main music thing was I was happy when I was getting to interview people like Neil Young, right. who I really loved, in fact, loved enough to write a book about him yeah. as well. Yeah. So I had my own taste, but as you keep going to these things, you start absorbing it, it becomes your new taste. I yeah. guess it's like you go out with one guy and you think that you know the light shines out of his behind and then that's all over and you're with a new guy and yeah. you suddenly see all of their good bits. So yeah, yeah. It really, you just start absorbing all of that stuff. And so yeah, that was a very big and important part of my life. And but I mean you you know, you just mentioned your sort of part of the mainstream discovery of Motley Crue and part of the um, selling in a sense of Guns N' Roses, the putting them over, mm-hmm. um, part of the discovery of Van Halen because that was that tour with Sabbath was really where they were launched, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that that woodshed it before that, but that was really where they'd so that, I mean, right there, there's three pretty enormous names. Lucky, and, huh? <laughs> yeah, and there are more, right? There are more. Like, yeah, there are, this, you know, this would go on and on. A few, a few silly, fun footnotes, too, I'm sure, like a few bands that didn't quite have the impact that those did. Oh, but. yeah, there's plenty of names. It's funny, I was just the other week, two weeks ago, sitting with Lars of Metallica, yeah. and uh, we were reminding each other of the good old days and before Metallica were Metallica. They were just still a little garage band, yeah. literally in his dad's garage. He would come up to my place with his friend who dubbed himself Heavy Metal John. <laughs> and they would go, well, not John, because John had some good manners, but Lars would go sort of like rifling through my bins to find all those 8 by 10 free photos they used yeah. to send us back in the day in press releases on everything on what they called Norbham, New Wave of British yeah. Heavy Metal, yeah. Metal yeah. N-W-O-B-H-M. And uh, he would find all these diamond head and iron maiden things, and like, can I have it? Can I have it? Yeah, sure, leave me alone. And this was his love, and we were talking about those kind of, you know, great yeah. old days where I was living in Laurel Canyon, and actually wrote under the name Laurel Canyon for Kerrang because yeah. around about that time, Sounds got a new editor called Jeff Barton, who was a big fan of Nawabum, and so we'd always have Iron Maiden and these bands in there, and Def Leppard. And I'd get sent on the road with them too, which was great. They were really sweet guys. And uh, so I would do that stuff. And then um, and then suddenly I forgot. Oh, yes, then he put out a side. Uh, that was for Sounds. And then he put out a side magazine called Crime. And so to write for that, I had to have another name. Yeah. And, and sometimes we'd run pictures of the writers back then. So I had blue-black hair, which my hair was dyed. <laughs> in Motley style uh, for sounds and then for Karen I had a yeah. wig so, which was a bit more like kind of cutesy young Marianne Faithful but with slightly smaller boobs so that was yeah, that was the way it was and so I had yeah. these two things so I was writing over and over again for both I mean mm. I'd have to have a look up the 1980 page and see what was going on then and this is but also doing other interviews for other magazines that would be with say Rod Stewart or you yeah, know, yeah, Michael yeah. Jackson or somebody you know yeah yeah the pop stars of the Prince, day or the yeah. classic rock stars of mm-hmm. the day as they were becoming um, and this is all in the typewriter and when you 
talking some of this down the telephone for dictation and not usually or, you should put it in the post yeah. I mean because it was out every week if it missed one week it would be in just the next, in the next week yeah, you know? right, right. and occasionally they would do that they would have some poor suffering person who call up and ask you to read from your carbon copy yeah, is yeah. this is like going down history lane isn't it? <laughs> it's so funny to think of the way these things were done yeah, it was so hard I remember I had a syndicated column in America where this uh, newspaper in Long Beach which was part of the syndication had bought this brand new kind of thing that was a sort of early fax we had to keep turning this this handle like a yeah. crank as if you were playing hurdy-gurdy or something and slowly but surely this piece of paper that was wrapped around it like a toilet roll would just kind of somehow miraculously end up back in you know whatever magazine it needed to be in it's really quite funny well you've well if I, if I mention someone's name to you this has come up a few times with us you you'll usually go oh yeah he she is a friend and it'll be someone like Steve Vai or Robert Plant. You know, it'll be some huge name. It'll be someone whose music I grew up with, and in a lot of cases you grew up with too, and, and anyone listening to this. Um, there's, I mean, uh, you've told me before, and I've heard you tell other people a story about Van Morrison being pretty difficult, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people know that about him. Pretty difficult. It's a very polite <laughs> term. Well, let's get... Say le- something that rhymes with hunt. Yeah. Well, let's get, less okay. po- let's get less polite. You know, I thought, you know, what's... It's, it's, it's always nice hearing that people are nice, are interesting, are funny, are friendly. You must have dealt with some... By virtue of the fact that it's the fucking music industry, you must have dealt with some awful people. Um, how before you name and shame any of them, um, how have you kept on good terms with so many people and how have you balanced the idea that you're writing about people but also creating a, a friendship sort of evolves with them? I, I take it that it's a sort of integrity and honesty around what you do, that people either value the writing or maybe they don't really... Well, I was going to say, maybe they don't really read it and just uh, you know know you as a person, but I think everyone actually reads the writing, don't they? Like, even yeah. the people who say they don't, they, yeah, someone know. reads they it to do. them. They Somehow they say they don't, but then it they, they quote them. it word for yes, word yes, to say what they didn't like. Yes. Now, how do you do it? I don't really know. Most of it is sort of fairly organic, you know. Mm. There's some people you're drawn to and some you're not, and vice versa, you mm. know. And I think partly it comes about just from time, you know. That if you've been doing it for forty years and you've interviewed people on a regular basis, yeah, it's going to say more than one occasion. That just, you know, yeah. they start kind of, you know, they want to. They ask you what you've been up to first. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, they just yeah. want a conversation. Yeah, and then that gets put aside, and you go both go in with your gloves on, and you really, you know, go for a good knockout. Yeah, get what you want to get, and you go your separate ways. Others sometimes once you've been on the road with perhaps say somebody like Ozzy somehow it turns into a bit of a friendship and then you'll go over to their place up to Aussie and Sharon's to have dinner and stuff. Yeah. You get invited to things. Sometimes it goes through waves for a while. You're friendly with them for quite some time mm. and then not so much. And other times they're just more like the kind of old friends that you only just see every few years. Mm, mm. But it's a bit more than just a job. Mm. For example, I've interviewed Neil Young so many times now I can't even count, you know? First time I think was in about dozens. 79. Yeah, dozens. Um, I don't find myself thinking in the least way friendly towards Yes. You know? But there's a familiarity time. when you do an interview. No, not really. Not not even? No. So wow. there's some people you can just interview yeah. again and again. and you. Do but you've had job. good interview experiences with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, they either forget you, too much dope, or they... Or um, their shield is up. Yeah, the yeah. shield is up, or they don't care. Yeah. And some people care. And, and so it's a bit of all three of those things with Neil. And too much dope. it's, again, from being in the business a long time, business being a very mm. funny name for it, mm. but being in this world for a long time, is sometimes you discover these bands. You're the one that presents them to yeah. the world. And so from that, you know, they're on the same level as you back then. So yeah. it's not like you're trying to be a staff rocker. You know, these are people that you you know because you came up together. You know, or maybe at one point I was more important in very large quotes, yes. probably 10 <laughs> rows of quotes yeah. around it, but in that I had a bit more clout than they did. Well, you're, I was going to say... now like, they kind of run the universe. Yeah, yeah. But it's nobody. nice to... But they don't forget you because, <laughs> say, like Metallica, like you mentioned Lars, like, mm. because you're forever part of their story in, in some sense, right? And some are really nice. Lars, um, when Metallica were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they actually invited me and a bunch of people who were there in the beginning at their first indie record companies wow. and supporters yeah. back then and even people like Scott Ian from Anthrax you know the yeah. sort of old rivals if you like and yeah, friends, yeah. they invited them along to a big party people from the elements us, of their story yeah and yeah. got us most of us seats at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame so there's people who are really good people yeah. you know and you know and somebody like you mentioned Van Morrison and, and the difficult ones there's usually difficult people you know in any any yeah. line of work some people exactly. are nice, some people are shitheads. Mm. And even the ones who are difficult, you know, usually they've got something interesting to talk about unless they're being just obstructive and difficult. Hello, Lou Reed. <laughs> but, you know, they've still got something about them, a passion in mm. them, and some aura to them that makes them interesting. Well, I was going to say... they've been up there on the stage and done all, written all these great songs. I was going to say, you can, you can, you can... And sometimes it's easier to get an interesting interview out of someone who's difficult, right? Or you can't, maybe not easier, but mm. you can get. It's more fun, I More fun. And I mean, you, you said, um, you said, hello, Lou Reed. And it's like, I always think, I've talked to you about this before, but I always think about that piece you wrote about Lou Reed and Mojo. And I think in many ways that, I mean, and that was what, 10 years before he died, I suppose, or yeah, something like that. that yeah. I feel like that's a pretty accurate summary of the last, you know, quarter of his professional life. Like, that's mm. sort of where that's probably an end point for where he got to and who he was as a figure if, in, in terms of a snapshot. So I wouldn't have wanted that experience at all. I wouldn't have wished that on anyone. He sounded like such a jerk, but you managed to do that without it coming across as vindictive. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I may be wrong, but I got the impression when I was first writing for Sounds in the late 70s that they'd sometimes send me to do interviews with people with men who were really awkward. Yeah. Because in win. the past, you know, it could be quite physical, the relationship. I don't mean sexually physical, but physical in that, say, Tony Iommi might come to the office and then knock somebody out. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. They could get violent. And so I sometimes think that they sent me to some of the violent or awkward people that yeah. they thought they wouldn't hit a girl. Yeah. And it's true. Nobody yeah. ever hit me. Yeah, you know, I've never been hit or pissed on or any of those weird things or make privacy happened. in my own home, but I'm yeah. not going there. Yeah, but you know, it's one of those things where <laughs> <laughs> I've got to get a good reputation. Now I'm on the road, you know, <laughs> tough rock chip. Yeah, it's true. It's it, all over AC, but uh, it, 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 it's true that um, I guess your you know you're saying your gender obviously worked against you in in the sense that people go, no, we've already got our girl. Mm-hmm. But then, I guess when you became the girl for that publication mm-hmm. or one of, yeah. um, then it 
could really work for you as well, right? Well, like the reason I love sounds, when I'd moved back to England, they, you know, the editors change, and this was a new editor, I won't, I won't name and shame, mm. but all he wanted to do was send me off to interview people with wombs and ovaries, you know, I, I wasn't allowed to speak to the boys. Right. Right. And having had my own kingdom for seven years out in... Having more than proved yourself. LA, it was, uh, you know, that was a little hard to take. So when the mm. didn't take it, and mm. I just you mm. know, rolled up the magazine and told them where they should stuff it. Which is a bit hard because it was paper, so it wouldn't have hurt very much. Had Not it enough. been Q or Mojo, that could be very, <laughs> very painful. But, you know, that was the gentle <laughs> stop it. And I left. But yeah, it's a kind of very bizarre thing. Being a girl, I mean, the boys hit on you. That happens. But, yeah. you know, once you've seen where they, they go and what they do with themselves when they wrote, which was very early on in my career, and there was no way you were going to take one of those home to meet your mum. <laughs> and <laughs> even if mum was 6,000 miles away. So there wasn't the romance there, but a few of them would get a bit drunk and out of it and yeah. start hammering on the door at night. So. But what you're saying is part of the thing that it becomes pretty demystified pretty quickly yeah I mean the, I think the only way really to do an interview properly is if you're if you have got that sense of sort of detachment a total mm. focus and interest on them but a detachment on your role in it in a yes. sense that it's all about them I want to find about them yeah. and that's my job to try and find out not just the standard crap but try and really find out what's mm. going on and what they really think and what they really get up to and sometimes you just You've got a quick interview you have to turn around with somebody who's not that interesting. I mean, mm. would you really want to know everything about some, you know, bizarre little kind of nothing band that yeah. a band like Cinderella, sorry, I know yeah. that a lot of people like them, but really boring. In the band. scheme of the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in the scheme of things you don't really need to uncover everything yeah. about them all. And there's a huge difference in how an interview rolls if you're doing three or five or seven hundred words versus 3,000, yeah, you know, like your mojo words. pieces now. But even that then I had long interviews, even if I wrote short ones, because I'd get very interested in them. But, you know, you can be sort of detached from it in that way, and so, I don't know, you just you just go in, you go in without gender in a way. I mean, you don't use your feminine yes. wiles, maybe it comes naturally, you just sort of yeah. realise you're sort of, you know, flirting with them a bit, so they tell you more. I don't know. Mm. I don't remember deliberately doing that. Mm-hmm. Because I always think, like, what I've noticed more with interviewing people, and, you know, I really, apart from doing things like this, I really interview people down the phone, which is mm. never, the, well, it's not often that much fun, mm. and it's more of a challenge. But, you know, finding out about the music isn't really that exciting or that much of a revelation, because anyone can find out about the music by listening to it, right? Like, it's, it's, it is about finding out about the person and if there's a personality behind that. And getting to that personality means revealing those layers. Well, yes, getting them to pull down this, that obvious guard. Yeah, who is who this is person? Who is the person who can make this music yeah. and what's, me so much? And what's something funny or sad or embarrassing or interesting that's happened to them? on that path you know what are the things that and what are the records that they listen to that I never thought they would those sorts of things right and just sometimes I'm also incredibly interested in stardom and fame and you know that Mm. book I wrote Too Weird for Ziggy the Mm. uh, short stories was all based on this idea that hit me that you know celebrity corrupts and absolute celebrity corrupts absolutely which it kind of was at the time I was thinking of it you know when Mm. the whole big metal scene had turned into bimbos in bathtubs and people Mm. just you know, it was really getting exploited and mm. weird and quite deranged out there in a bad way. I like good derangement, yeah. but it's bad derangement. 
Also, there were all these issues over Michael Jackson and some other sort of nasty stories that were mm. going on. And so I was really interested in exploring that. But occasionally, even in my interviews, if I'm interviewing a very big star, I might just throw in some kind of really oddball question to see if I can understand what it's like living as a star. I remember I did an interview with Mick Jagger once in London. We were sitting around together, and he's a funny fish, but... I was asking him, I'd seen on the telly the night before, there'd been some, some program on where it, there was a panel of people talking about kind of sexuality and stuff. There's a lot of feminists and stuff. And, and they were kind of ragging on Mick Jagger and his young mm. girlfriends and stuff. And, and uh, one of them on the panel, I can't remember her name, the Australian feminist, you know who I'm Oh, Jermaine, yeah, Jermaine Jer- Greer. Yeah, Jermaine Greer, thank you. She is, I think she has slept with Jagger at some point or something and was talking about the experience. If it wasn't Jermaine, I'm sure she likes that idea that she'd been with old Nick. So, anyway, I mentioned that to Nick. I said, do you know I saw on the telly last night this thing? And in mm. England, there wasn't much telly at that time, so mm. you probably saw it. And I said, uh, well, you know, if you turn on the TV or your kids are there, and you sort of see this stuff, like having your sex life discussed by a feminist on stage in front of, like, I said, does it, does it just wash over you? I mean, do you stop in your tracks? Do you think, oh, shit, I should have been yeah. a bit better in bed? Or... What you know, and he was talking about all that stuff. And at one point, I said to him, You know, your, your kids are like kind of 14, 16 mm. year old girls. And he said, Yeah, I said, He said, I don't like talking about my kids. I said, Well, it's not really about your kids. What I'm curious about is if they bring their friends home, like their girlfriends home, do their friends hit on you? Mm. Is that weird, you know? And so it was a question that I guess nobody had asked him before. Mm. And he kind of thought, You know. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to do, that thing of being a father and existing in the real world when you exist in this fantasy, huge fantasy world that's been created by the massive stage show people and phenomenon that Stones became from being mm. a regular little rock band in the past. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's funny, those little things I was just thinking of. Um, I, one of my, What's become one of my preoccupations, I think, when talking to people is wondering what... We want to know what their not just their home life, but how they how they manage if they do to be an ordinary person. And often when you find out that they are very ordinary people, that's that can seem underwhelming to maybe a reader or whatever, but I find that very interesting. And I, I remember asking Steve Vai, who I know you know well, um, something about, uh, he was talking about his, his uh, son, you know, and f- coming around and friends coming around, and I said something about... Um, I can't remember how he got onto it, but talking about what his um, children's friends thought of him, and he said, you know, they didn't really know anything about me as Steve Vai, but then somehow it was mentioned that I was in the movie Crossroads, mm. and he said, you know, it's real funny, like that's way more interesting to my, you know, to that generation because yeah. that because they can access it, like they don't have to have the knowledge of the music. But they can see a guy who was in a movie, and that meant a whole lot to them. It was like here's a guy, who, but they hadn't actually, they didn't care to follow it through and listen to his albums and go, well, that's that same guy still playing the guitar. He must make music like that. That was, you know. So these things are sometimes random, but it's really more mm. just trying to really try and get at the heart of what about them moves me or yeah. moves other people. Because some some of the people I talk to, you know. I don't like their music whatsoever, but I still have to talk to them. Yeah, yeah. And that's so anything that's prog rock, in case you want <laughs> Anything like Journey or Kansas or Boston. <laughs> well, I was going to say, when did, like, 
with the heavy metal scene, the music must have got, I mean, part of what's fantastic about that scene is that the music is quite silly mm-hmm. on one level, but there must have been a case of that music getting just a bit too stupid for you. Yeah. That's, that's a good way of putting yeah. it. I guess it got a bit too over the top, really, yeah. and started taking itself too seriously. Yeah. Because in the past it was quite fun, you yeah. know? Yeah. They were like kids having a great time, and I'm glad that they got, um, you know, happy, healthy, and wealthy, but not so much the happy part, I guess. Just uh, the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not even the healthy part. That was a really <laughs> bad thing. Let's start the entire thing again. I'm glad they got some success because that's yeah. what they wanted. That's yeah. really what they were in it for. But there was this weird period in the 80s when the whole of the music business changed. Now I'm putting on my music yeah. historian hat, which yeah. is a very ugly hat, so I don't wear it too often. But <laughs> what happened in the 80s is kind of everything suddenly went into colour, mm. you know, from black and white. All the magazines like the, the British weeklies that were just old newsprint. They started falling apart, and then we'd get Q and uh, Smash Hits and these other great magazines that were glossy. CDs came out, LPs displayed, little glossy, shiny things instead of black things that get scratched. And so all of this was going on. MTV was on. We got these like, like bands that got on simply because they were look good and they, mm. were, they were colourful, preferably not their skin because they don't like that in America. Mm, mm. That to really fight to get poor Michael Jackson on there. But generally speaking, it all just changed and it became much more glossy and the income of the music business went way up into the stratosphere in the same mm. way that now it's almost disappeared in the other direction. Yeah. Stratospherically high. As a music journalist, it meant they had more money to spend on me, which I was very grateful for. Yeah, sitting around the so place. So you got to have yeah. Concord instead of, you know, a regular flight <laughs> and better looking free food and, and clothes and stuff. And so that was the good part of it. But the bad part was that bands like Motley Crue, who were fun in the beginning, got signed up in a second and they were hugely, hugely, massively millions and millions of dollars successful within a year or so. Yeah. And because these things were happening, it just, you lost that kind of innocence and mm. hunger and the stuff that makes a band interesting and, and makes the people want to be their supporters. And it's hard to, it really is hard to follow a hit record, right, too. Like, when you listen back on someone like, you know, Neil Young's career now and you look through those 70s albums and think they're all magnificent and, they, and, and pretty much they are. But, a lot of them flopped at the time or, you know, didn't or had a different somber tone and weren't actually a hit. We listen to them now, you know, I, I only discovered them for the first time sort of 20 years ago. So I just think, how was On the Beach or Tonight's the Night? Not a, not always amazing. <sighs> Wonderful albums. So yeah. Tonight's Tight was a huge hit in England. We yeah. like black, miserable music over there. Mm, you know, mm, Anna Cohen mm. was always a big hit. But you know, you know what I mean, though. Like yeah. Some of those records aren't, mm. you know, their this, this story has... Or you've just been talking to Terry Reid, for example. You know, mm. it's like, you listen to his albums and go, how now? And go, I could see how someone would just go, wow, where's this guy been my whole life? Like, why, why wasn't this stuff out there and big and it kind of was for a little time and then it was just never really big but it no, was out there no but it was there. out there That's he was known and he yeah. still got a really huge following from what I can gather you know yeah. people have been in touch reputation people have been in touch because of the piece I yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but now huge. people are going to hear those records and go you know your piece might um, take them to those records for example when they've been reissued and, that, and people I could imagine people going how have I not heard this before and why wasn't this a big deal at the time? But 
that's different to say Motley Crue having a smash hit. It becomes very hard to have another smash hit on top of that. Mm-hmm. And even if they manage it one time, something, the music disappears and the hype and the ego and the stuff around the music is amplified rather than... That's the, that's, exactly, you, you've got it spot on. The yeah. hype becomes bigger than the music. Mm. Everything's amplified. And so, you know, I kind of started, you know, slowly exiting from metal. Yeah. About 1990, I guess, and was doing, getting into the Imperial Colonist. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because I sort of feel like one of the roles, and maybe less so now, but one of the absolute roles of music journalism has been to, in some sense, be, be part of that hype machine. Um, but then another very valid and crucial aspect of that is to cut through the hype and to present, you know, um, recommendations based on some sort of value and taste system, which mm-hmm. is, you know, eccentrically the own, you know, belongs to whoever the writer is or maybe the publication. So there's a bit of a push-pull there, and you've done a bit of both. Of or a lot of both. You've, you've been involved in exclusively... Pumping up a, finding new people, yeah. pumping up a scene, and then you've been involved things like the Americana column. I mean, there was certainly a time when old country in Americana was massive and people were trying to get as much money from it as they could. But sort of 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but it has always actually been, that music's always been around and continues to be around. And you've sort of created columns around the value of the music rather than you know, this is this month's latest thing and mm-hmm. it's only good for this month. And a lot of the indie bands that came out of Americana were just so good. Mm. And there was no other outlet for them mm. to get any kind of attention whatsoever. It's interesting, one of the things, you know, that is a sort of, I don't know, probably one of the less pleasant sides of music journalism, whereas most of it is wonderful, so, mm. you know, I can't really complain about it, is... <clears throat> That you find a new band and you really talk them up, you know, you, you go over the top, mm. you mm. put their name everywhere you can. Yeah. They get a record deal from it maybe, or if they had a record deal to start with, they start getting attention, getting gigs. And then maybe four albums or three albums into the career, they start getting a bit crap, or they put out a bad record. Mm. And it is then your duty as a music journalist, as it was mine, to cut to say, them down. this is crap. Now this one's not good, you know, love them, but it's not as good. Mm. And then they get, as you can get very personal with you, I've had several of them in my face about it, but that's so typical of the press, they build you up mm. and knock you down. It's, no, this is a bad album. It's my job to say whether it's good or bad, mm. this is decidedly a bad one. And so then that person will talk to you again, and mm. you know, that happens a lot. But well, you have to be there to tell the truth to power. I mean, I know it sounds too grand, especially with what's going on in the world of politics right mm-hmm. now, that we're telling the truth to power. If I could tell it to the real power, I'd do that, but my it's own relative to there, the, It's yeah. relative to the sphere. Yeah, that's exactly. the sphere you operate in, and that's the mm-hmm. role. And that musician, whoever they are, that's telling you, oh, that's typical of the press, that's just a classic example of a person looking for anyone else to blame but themselves for yeah. not for phoning it in for mm-hmm. not delivering or just running out I mean, for running out of ideas it? and music exactly mm. you know I remember I think it was Richie Blackmore said to me once he thought that you know it's like women have eggs he said and I think that we have kind of songs and we kind of run out of songs like women run out of eggs or something mm. I can't remember the exact terminology <laughs> he used but that was the idea that, yeah. you know 
there's a point where you've got so many little kind of seeds of creation in you and then you run out mm. or at least you go through a time that you don't and you were talking earlier about Neil Young's early albums versus the new ones which are generally quite throwaway you might find yeah. a good track or two yeah. one of his albums recently was so bad I was listening to it in the car and nearly drove off the road <laughs> literally had to go take myself on the side of the highway because I thought I can't listen to this it's um, made me crash the, the car I, I feel like, and I'm in, you know, like a lot of people, I'm a Neil Young fan that will follow him, you know, at least, you know, I may not revisit Even that if album. Even it's of unrighteousness. I will totally want to hear the new Neil Young album. Me and I, I was thinking, I think I wrote this the other day, like the gap is widening between the really good and sort of essential Neil Young albums. It certainly feels like the gap is widening between them. It used to be oh well I don't like this one but there'll be another one in a year and that'll be worth hearing and, and there's still one each year but it's taking a while before there's one that you know people sort of hang on to Psychedelic Pill and go that was great that's some great jamming on some it. good yeah, stuff great on instrumental it. that's yeah. good but that was four years ago but then some other people actually have like reverse kind of careers in the mm. you know Tom Waits is turning out you know even better stuff now than when you first started, you know. But he's a bit like he's a bit like someone like Paul Simon, where there's a great quality control aspect to what he does. You know, he's yeah. not like Neil; he's not flooding the market and moving on. And no. I think both of those approaches are great. I, I love the Neil Young approach of, you know, I sort of think of Neil Young as like the musical equivalent of a blogger. These are my thoughts yeah. for today, for this year, for this month. Bang, here they are. Dump. If something sticks. Great. If it doesn't, don't give a shit. I'm already moving on. I'm more. I've got another deadline I've imposed on myself, and that's you know one really good valid way to do it. But Tom Waits is someone who's like, I don't have anything to say right now. I'm, but you don't know what I'm cooking up. And when I put it out there, it might have taken a month or ten years. You know, might have all just gelled in one month with him. It's it, you know it's it, these are all great things. This is what keeps us doing it though, right? These are all yeah. great things to ponder. Mm-hmm. And and wonder about, but I was since we're talking about Neil again. I wondered what did you think of Earth because I saw you posting about the Earth album um, on a first listen. It wasn't as and bad as some of the <laughs> others before, and I mean yeah. this is this is a really bad. I, I didn't take. I didn't even sure if I reviewed it. I think I did. I did. I think you might have been, but I haven't read it. It was a, one of those little tiny two hundred and fifty yeah. words. Yeah, things. yeah. And it wasn't bad. What I liked about it because it was mostly kind of new versions of some mm. of the old songs, all of which had a an ecological yeah. kind of message of some sort, and of which there are many over the years with him, mm. is that the young kids, you know, the, the Nelson kids that he's playing with, mm. they seem to have put a, you know, a fire up his Yeah, body. there's an he's energy. He's got thing. some real energy. And I was going back and listening to the original versions of the songs that he covered, and some of them are just still from classics where I mm. could never possibly imagine them being redone. Mm. But sometimes on the sort of more, you know, mediocre, earlier versions, he sounded really good on them. So, yeah, I, I yeah. kind of like this one. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. It's, it's um, you know, the whole talk around the animal noises and that yeah, was that sort was of like, silly. it's a silly, but it, but you can get over it. Like, you can look past it. Yeah, I wish I were version without the animals. That's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a little, extra you know, he likes all experts. these little interactive things. So if you <laughs> yeah. could like put it online so you can press a button yeah, and that's... have no moo cows but, and chirpy birds. But you're right about what the um, the Nelson's boys, they're like, the jamming feels a little bit more structured, but not so much that it's soulless and mechanical. It's got still, there's still Which that. Which always loved. That's why I love Crazy Horse. They weren't exactly, you know, mm. a symphony orchestra. No. They just got down and dirty with yeah. it. Yeah, but these guys seem to be capable of, of 
referencing all of that I did and CSD. doing something, yeah, yeah, a little bit less jaded, a little bit less yeah. going through the motions, right? Like, yeah, I thought it was, I reckon it's the best, well, I think it's the best Neil Young thing since Psychedelic Pill. Yeah, you know, probably. You know, it's yeah. and it's a shame that it's older songs. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be nice that's to... what happens. You know, as they get older. And in fact, he's done it less than most. You think about it. People always leave. Oh, he's still old. and he's still put out a record a year. Yeah. Or more. But which... Some of them. That double album was just. I can't even think. I won't even remember its title. Yeah. Principle. Yeah. It was so scary. Yeah. The one he's... with his love songs to Daryl on it. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I know the one you mean. Um, yeah, it's a bit... <laughs> was it, was it that line about, I wake up and I smell your breath and you're kind of cross-eyed in bed? I, was like, <laughs> I think, you know, if she'd married him, she should divorce him at that point. <laughs> so, um, so her, well, what, you know, we've talked a little bit around what keeps you doing the writing and I guess, like, you're not about to, well, I was going to say you're not about to launch into a new career, but a few years ago you kind of did. But, um... What what is what are the other things that are <laughs> keeping you enthused about writing about music? What have you got left to cover? You know what I'm just thinking because you've done it for a long time, and you know I can dredge up just about any name that I can think of. And if you haven't, you know, if you don't have their phone number in your book, <laughs> you, you've at least met them, you know, or yeah. talked to them. So, um, what's keeping you doing that? What's yeah. left for you to tap into? I guess, into? I mean, you're right now in my home, so mm. you can see what it's like. What's in this room? A couple of chairs, a table, a stereo. There's the world's biggest some, ukulele. Some, the biggest ukulele. This is the chair. <laughs> and there, Frank's and, diary. And there's a piano here. And if you walk through the other rooms, it's just mm. nothing but music. Mm. And it's, I think that somehow or other, you know, when I got dropped on my head as a baby, I became music obsessive. Mm. And so... Uh, because now when I ever I hear a piece of music, even if I'm sitting in a restaurant and they're playing something, you know, that sometimes I'll have to run out because it's so bad, uh, I have to sort of have an opinion and mm. it sort of turns itself into a little mini article in my head and leads to a fascination of, hmm, that's really interesting, it reminds me of such and such, I'd like to ask them about that. So I think that I wouldn't have anywhere to put all of these I might need to thoughts and curiosities. Do you remember when we went to see craft work? Yeah. You got me that ticket, yeah. thank yeah. you very much, yeah. when I was out yeah. in Australia yeah. and uh, at the book fair there and singing Leonard Do I remember seeing craft work? Of course so I, I wasn't reviewing it. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I know. You said, I thought that was really cool. You said, um, you, we sat down and you said, um, now, do you mind if I take notes? And I kind of, you know, I felt like, I was part of that support crew that would have 40 years ago carried in your tape recorder. I was like, I'm, I'm part of the team here. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm watching someone who I've read write about music for years take notes in preparation. And I felt guilty. We've all got our different process, but I felt for a second slightly guilty that I was going to write about that show and not take notes. Because <laughs> I've, I've taken notes before at shows. I used to do that. And these days I find mostly I don't need to but I still usually take a pen and paper absolutely I want to write something down I used to write down the um, you know most of the track list as it was happening and if I didn't know the song I could write down a lyric or but nowadays you go home from a show and the track list is online by some eager fan as soon as you get home so you can actually look the whole thing up so now I sort of might take notes of something that mm. catches my eye that happens but I'm also trying to train myself to remember that. 
to me it's almost part but of it was cool that process. you exactly it was cool you know, I, I, just, I lose all these notes at the end of it I don't keep my notebooks yeah yeah you know some of them get piled somewhere I wouldn't be able to find them that's what I, that piece of paper or whatever I wrote that's what I took from that when you said mm-hmm. that I just thought that's really cool that's your way of listening to this that's, that's what you do mm-hmm. and I was just thinking before like when you explained about um, always having to have an opinion on music and processing it and composing an article. I wondered if I could, after this, get Katie on the phone and you could explain that to her so <laughs> she knows that there is someone else in the, in the world that madness, has that madness. afflicted with this particular yeah. illness. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like that sometimes. As I say, I, I am so obsessional if I go in a supermarket and they're playing you know, some R&BP thing that I don't like, but one of the new young kids who's had their voice on auto-tune. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm analysing it while I'm trying to get some frozen peas and, you know, a pint of milk. It can get really quite insane. So I think that's what keeps me going on it. Mm. And usually because, as I say, from the luck of having got in when I did into writing and, and staying in so long, people ask. And I go, yeah, that's interesting. Sure, I'll write about that. And it's really fascinating. Mm. These days there's no absolutely no money you know, mm. in the past you could sort of look oh, like know, an undergraduate <laughs> student if you worked seven yeah. days a week. But you were having such a good time, you didn't care. Now you can't even live like a regular student, mm. you know. So it's more something that you do for for the pure love of it. Mm. And and it is good. I still do like going out and, you know, so hanging with Terry Reid for a day. And, mm. and so I even set up a gig for him in, in San Francisco. Wow. So, and then you've got, you've got this kind of gig going, get playing parallel career, I can't call it a side career, it's yeah, sort it's of a parallel career, isn't it? supporting Giant Sand on their farewell tour. Yeah, so that's, and that's mm. bringing in income too, but also that's giving you something outside of the income, but that's, you know, um, and keeping you connected to music and allowing you to explore music, and I assume you get some kind of some writing gigs or some sort of ideas for your writing through networking with musicians in that sense uh, not, not really. so much no they seem to be both independent no, and right. just come out from some little which is probably actually I don't probably, know what's in there probably anymore. quite a good way of keeping them I suppose yeah. to keep them when I was writing the songs I mean it's it's so weird and I've said it before but maybe to you but you know when you interview musicians and you ask them where a particular song came mm. from and they say oh, I didn't really write it it just came I channeled it or one of those dreadful things they come up with and damn it they're telling the truth you yeah. know I'll sit there with my uke and just relax and mm. drink or two mm. and a song just comes out by itself and you might change a little bit or change the bridge but sometimes it comes out entirely intact and you think, shit, where did that come yeah. from? So it's in there somewhere, and I think it's this is the way that, you know, the writing came. It was just in there. I had to do it. And then the music kind of came up for some reason. I had to do it at that time. Well, what's your... I don't know if this is interesting mm. to anyone or even to you, but it is, it is to me. So we'll I'm going to add some anecdotes. <laughs> well, I wanted to know joke. what your kind of approach to mechanically to writing is. Do you need to be in a particular... to writing about music or, or writing a book, do you need to be in a particular frame of mind and space or is that just the ideal? Have you trained yourself to 
imagine to some degree you've changed yourself, but I don't know that you do the overnight sort of stuff like I do mm. so often. The sort of next not so much anymore. You I just would, think my you metabolism would have, yeah, you would have changed yeah, from that. Hasn't, hasn't but does that does that kick in if you need it? Like, is that an olfactory oh, yeah. sense you can call up? So you oh, can absolutely. sit on a bed in a hotel on the laptop and tap something out and send it, and it's done, and you can be as pleased with it as you need to be. Yep, I can do that, and I, I've done some of the all nighters, you know, when I've had to get things yeah. in by deadline, and it's just yeah. become too hard because I was out doing something else like music, playing yeah. music. So yeah, I can still do that, but normally it's. It's a, a book is a, they're all different. Each yeah. thing has a different thing. The short form, the medium form, the long yeah. form. Uh, a book is discipline. It's that I have to get this done. So every day I have to sit down and hammer away at mm-hmm. it. Mm. You know, and I have to have sort of like a schedule, almost like a person with a regular job. I have to not do it nine to five, but I know I have to put in a good solid eight hours mm. of work on that day. If not, I'll be two days behind or whatever along the, by the end of the week so that's for that for the small ones it's deadline is its own discipline mm. somebody wants an album review it's got to be in by tomorrow you listen you write you reread it reread it to make yeah. sure it makes some sense you get it to length off it goes and medium the, the stories I have to be in the right mood yeah and do you have to be in a listening frame of I mean again this is a, a sort of an mm. idealistic sense do you have to be in a listening frame of mind to listen to albums to like the number one question I would get yeah. asked which I hate is how many times do you listen to an album before you review it but can you take it with you on your headphones um, can you or no do you... I have to sit down and listen to it yeah. and I get really mad when I'm sent stuff on links and yeah. usually the only people I'll do that for is people like awkward Neil Young who's yeah. such a bastard he won't even send out any free albums or CDRs or anything it's link or nothing even that's a stream you can't download Mm, mm. it's a very paranoid piece of work and so with that well it's just control isn't it it's control freak you know but so I have to listen to him in a bad situation because Mm. I've got good speakers and everything with my computer but it's not the same as sitting in here on an armchair with a good stereo or dancing if it's a dance music like moving around the room you know it's funny that because I think like you sit at your computer with headphones in and convince yourself that this is actually okay mm. sound. But that, well, I suppose nowadays it is more the experience, but that is not really the experience of the person who goes to the record store and buys the vinyl mm-hmm. and takes it home to sit in. my vinyl, as you can see here. Yeah. Who, can. who takes it home to listen to, that's a completely different experience. So it's we, a very different experience. And the other thing is that we don't really have the kind of... the the privilege of being able to listen for too long because to listen to something lots of times on a stream stuck on your bum in front of a computer albums are long albums are often now an hour some double hours Mm. two hours Mm. so logically you can't possibly listen to more than maybe once and a bit you know you can't really sit down for that length of time because you know you just can't you can't give it that much of your life anymore and that's the sad thing because Mm. You know, with an album review, you might get, like, if you're lucky, 25 bucks. Mm, mm. <laughs> and you've spent the whole day listening to that album and writing mm, it, you know. Mm. Unfortunately, living on dollars a day, it's just not... And the music, and the, and you got the free music doesn't hold anything now anyway because music is free. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, music, like yeah. it used to mean something, right? Yeah, a in bit. England we used to have this guy called Steve. They had a shop called Steve Sounds, and Steve we used to call it Bank of Steve. We used to actually come and pay house visits. Steve, yeah. wherever you are, loved you. Come up to Mojo Magazine <laughs> or everywhere else at your house, yeah. and you'd just get all your not wanted CDs or LPs, you know. Yeah. And which was part of your income. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. 
it was you know like taxi tips taxi driver tips yeah. you know yeah funny um no because i was just thinking and also you're transcribing from tape which is a bit like um the fiction writer that sits and writes longhand in the morning and then sits down to mm. the computer or typewriter and types it back up so mm. you've got that to add to your workload yeah. to your workload I said, so you read uh, interview was 30,000 words. That's about a third of a book to anybody so, who, you know, yeah. it's a smallish book, I guess. Yeah. So how many hours, days, weeks did that, that take? That took almost the entire month. It took weeks to transcribe yeah. and keep reworking from that. Because if you've got a really long tape, you've got wonderful material to work mm. from. But then you're also trying to condense it to the 4,000 words yes. of the magazine. Once. Once. Yeah. And, you know, whenever you're writing it, you know, these days, I guess you don't really have the freedom to write exactly what you want to do whenever you want to do. Mm. So you have to keep in mind you're writing for yourself, you're writing for what the magazine wants, you're writing for what you think the public is going to be interested in. So you're also balancing those things all of the time, you know? And, um, and uh, you're... <laughs> I'm just, I'm just sort of caught up in your transcription thing. I was going to say, do you ever, have you ever thought of, or I suppose this doesn't work for you because it's part of the process, the rewriting. You don't send that transcription out to a service. You do it yourself. No, I did, and I know there must be good transcribers out there, and they're probably so busy anyway. But I've not had the best of yeah. experiences in that. Yeah. There's a lot of errors. They don't always hear what the person has said or so they'll give people weird names you yeah, know I think yeah. I did it once I can't remember all the mistakes but it was on an ACDC interview a long one and I think she got everybody's name completely yeah. wrong that they mentioned because of the accents and, and when you I mean I've done a lot of my interviews over the phone where I record notes and write them up but I have also done some where I've recorded them and mm-hmm. I and and when you transcribe um your, your own voice and your own you know it, t- it takes you back to the experience mm-hmm. It's so you prompt ideas, you, prompt ideas, you remember yeah. scenes, oh, that's right, I'm going to write about yeah. how he got up and went and did this and gestured mm-hmm. to this. and yeah, this hearing. Way he got up and peed on the yeah. back wall and then came yeah. back as if nothing had happened. Yeah, yeah. He started eating. So there's that too, right, yeah, where it makes, it makes sense yeah. for you to be listening yeah, to. it kind of makes yeah. sense. And when I did the Leonard Cohen book, I did, a, gosh, it's over, oh, well over 100 interviews that book yeah it was well over 100 people and some of them I interviewed more than once but um because a lot of those people were not celebrities they were people who Mm. were just civilians people who knew him from their Mm. past they were monks or rabbis or people Mm. um as a courtesy I sent them their transcripts and said I will be the only one who sees this it was a way of kind of keeping their confidence you know and and respecting their privacy because sometimes these were very intimate conversations with former partners of his mm. and so if I sent it to, back to them they would know if there was anything that they'd maybe overspoken on and wanted to change in some way you know mm. and it was and just a way of doing it gives you the right to in a way it buys you the right to go back to them with follow up if you need to in a to. sense yeah it's part of that it's an that. insurance around yeah. that yeah. but it was a more of an assurance for them yes you know because yeah, yeah, to yeah. say something and then see it in a book written is another thing and so this gave him a chance to say, can I change it to that? Or yeah. could you maybe like not attribute that to me? You know, it's yeah. a piece of information. So you still get the information, but they feel more comfortable that you haven't, you know, betrayed their confidence, you know, yeah. on very private matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with books, it's, I find it's much better to, yeah. to do your own work. That way. So you're knee-deep in book work at the moment. Yeah. And 
and still writing reviews and columns for Mojo. Yeah, just writing up a long uh, and interview features. with Lars yep. of Metallica for right. the next issue. Yep, and still going out and doing shows almost whenever and wherever you can, it Yeah, seems. probably about, works out on average about four months, once yeah. a week actually yeah. over the space of a year. Yeah. But there's little periods that I get off. Yeah. And your last year was nuts. Like, you couldn't keep me off the stage. I yeah. was going all over the world. Yeah. Having the time of my life. Well, you had the huge travel around the... T- when when you came out to New Zealand, that was, a, that was probably six months either side of that seemed to be the biggest distance you travelled and... Mm. You know, you went to Aussie and New Zealand, and then next thing it was to England and around Europe. And so you've slowed down a bit on the international travel since then. But not really. As soon as the album came out, which was at the end of uh, 2014, so that was almost exactly two years after the poem book. Yeah. I went out on the road again, and that was the same thing: South America and Europe. Wow. Just a lot, you know. Wow. It was so much fun. Um, so who's the who's the um, interview that the mythical interview that you didn't get that you would have liked to have had happen, or is there one that's still there? You know, is still one left, the one I did not get and got very close to getting, but actually turned it down because the terms were too ridiculous. Yeah, and that's Bob Dylan. Right, he was the only one. Wow. So you know, Bob when you say ridiculous terms. It was at that time, um, it was for uh, Mojo, and they were uh, wanted a guaranteed cover story, and for that, I'd get 15 minutes with Bob. Wow. Anybody yeah, yeah. who does interviews knows that's nothing, especially yeah. somebody who back then, it was a time when Bob didn't speak. It was pre-Martin Scorsese movie. Right. You know, when he suddenly started yeah. talking, and we all stood there with our jaws on the ground, like, <laughs> what the fuck? He speaks, and he speaks the truth, and it's not in riddles. This mm. is just heavenly. But before that, when he was mysterious, you know, telling riddles, Bob, it was back then, and I could sit in on a press conference as well, where they'd chosen, <clears throat> excuse me, one person from each like, European country or yeah. something who would have the right to it. And I knew what would happen is that each of those people would change their name and sell it to a, an a, yeah, a yeah. syndication agency. And because Mojo is a monthly magazine, they'd have it out in some, you know, most mm. of the interview, the, the press conference interview would be out in another magazine. Yeah. And that was right. It was in the Sunday Times within... Yeah, days. Was long before we would have to get the Mojo issue out. So I didn't do it. Yeah. And, uh, but now that he's talking again, I hope, I hope that those and, that talking will come in my direction. I'd and, love to sit with him and have a really yeah, nice cup of coffee or a beer and just a good chat. But not a Bob Dylan book, because there's... No. The only reason Plenty is of those already. There's so many. Too that's many. exactly. I don't know about yeah. too many. Well, there's a lot lots of them are really great, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with Leonard Cohen, have a look on the bookshelves. There are not many good no, ones. There's no. been a few in recent years that have, you know, had a, that's a bit of, made a better effort at it. But yeah. you know, some of those early ones mm. were absolutely unreadable mm. and full mm. of ab- inaccuracies. It was terrible. So, of course to do Leonard Cohen would be a good idea but I think sometimes to do Bob Dylan we'd have to find that wonderful aspect of mm. him you know but even that there's you know there are so many books 
it's the same with the Stones and the, and the Beatles, I guess. But with Dylan, there are so many books written from the angle too. You yeah, know, there are books exactly. around books around particular albums. Or one, books by yeah. books by ex lovers, books yeah. by ex managers. Oh, that, that's you know? so tacky. I haven't yeah. read that one. No, neither. That I'm, one, like, I'm I think not. She's let the side down. You know. Yeah, I think that's. I really don't like those kiss and tell books at all. I really don't. And is that her only claim to fame? Is that you know she shagged Bob Dylan? Mm. Sorry for your life then. Yeah, no? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, like, I think the the Bob Dylan book the world needs is another volume of his memoir, right? Like, oh, absolutely. That's, the, that's, that's the one we really need. He's but. been busy on the road. See, we've got a parallel life now. Yeah. Me and Dylan yeah. writing biographies and, uh, and memoirs. <laughs> so that's going to be your connection. <laughs> yeah, this is it. Me and Bob so have to talk to me now. Now that I've worked that out. And was there anyone? that you know that I guess died before you got a chance to or when you think about now someone that it could have come up in the time that you've been working but just never probably not not really no I think you know all of these people who are dropping like flies lately and of course it's it's bound to happen you know mm-hmm. being, you know mm-hmm. the age when, when people are more likely to leave us uh, no I think I've spoken but to the, them all the know? prince death for me was a particular shock because it's Relatively young. Relatively young, and 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 we thought healthy. Yeah. You know, because it just shows how much you don't know. Even when people like you get inside the life of someone and mm-hmm. bring back details. Um, also, he played in New Zealand for the first time ever about two months before. Oh, so wow. we, I at least got to see him. Yes, yeah, so that gives uh, you more was, personal connection. Yeah, that's right. But it? then you go, you hear that. Yeah, I did interview him. I can't yeah. say that I enjoyed him as an interview. Well, I actually run into him as well uh, backstage at uh, a TV show at some point so that was my only connection mm, it wasn't mm. a long close connection yeah. with him but you know I but loved didn't you, his music did you interview him sort of Purple Rain era yes yeah. that was exactly so right. that's probably him at his most aloof in a way right because it's yeah. the first huge pinnacle of success that's right it was exactly and he's still right. carving out his persona and selling it to the mainstream so that would have You've been an unenviable yeah that was an interesting time but Nonetheless, I always followed what he was doing. Mm, that was mm. another press, and that even though if I didn't like all of the music yeah, exactly. or shows that he was doing, I liked to hear what he was up to. That so was my. That and was Bowie, my, of course, I knew. And well, that was my first thought hearing yeah. the news Prince died. Mm-hmm. Was like, well, it seems weird to live in a world where he's not doing something. In I my think, life, he'd always been doing something. And it's the same as Bowie. Mm, it's very yeah. much the same. He'd always been there. There's always actually Prince had a similar thing of always yep. like changing. Yep. And you know. Yeah, no, there are a lot much of, more colourful and interesting theatrical kind of yeah. characters in life. I think there are a lot of parallels between their how they managed their careers. You know, different different levels of productivity perhaps, but very similar the whole sort of fleeting movie star, you know, um, crossover, the whole idea of putting themselves on the screen as part of their art. Yeah, as know? a character. Yeah, as a character. It's very, very interesting. I think that I was hugely shocked when Bowie died. Mm. Even though he had, you know, we knew, the same with Lemmy, you know, even though we did know something of their illness, you know, we did know that they hadn't been in the best health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people saying with, with, with Bowie, it's, it is that thing. It's like, well, has it also his influence over... You know, not just his own work, his influence, which of course can carry on, but now it has a a more manufactured, a more sort of pointed, you know, feel. If someone's talking about a direct influence from Bowie, it seems a mm. bit more manicured. 
before there was this wild thread that ran through other people's things you could spot you could yeah. see that you know yeah it's, it's been a weird it's been a weird year very weird and very distressing well at least you've got the American election to <laughs> look well, forward to, to well, fix it no it's not good in politics no? in my country you know Britain yeah that's home. true I mean, here I'm yeah that must have been very weird news for you Asian. too actually like, well I sent him yeah. I'm allowed to vote in England mm. so I sent him my remain vote but mm. unfortunately it wasn't counted it wasn't heard well, it wasn't well, enough. Wasn't enough. Swear, I guess, yeah. you know, I could have, you know, maybe. I just didn't imagine that it would happen. So it's very sad to think that, you know, there's this kind of strange atmosphere in, in England now where London wants to kind of break out of England, Scotland mm. definitely wants to divorce Britain. And so many more people are trying to stay in Europe because, you know, that island, little island mentality is not a good one for the soul, you know. Mm. It really hasn't brought out the best in the British. It's interesting, actually, because you're a you know you're a British person who's lived in, actually lived in other parts of mm-hmm. Europe too, as well as obviously yeah. living over here. But you, you've actually you're like the model, <laughs> the model remain <laughs> candidate in a way. My modelling career now. <laughs> okay, here we come. Yeah. So, but are you following? I mean, the Trump. I watched oh, a little course. bit of the um, oh, convention oh. the other day. I couldn't not, but. It's sort of like hate watching something, you know. It's watching a train wreck, but yeah. unfortunately, it's still being treated as comedy, and it's very much not that. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really quite shocking because this man is such a, a narcissist, and I believe sociopath. You know, mm, mm. clearly, bad news, and uh, and the idea of having somebody like that running a big country like this, you know, people have mentioned the word Hitler, and it may be going over the top, but. I don't know, maybe not that much over the top. Well, it's not like the country's running itself or being run super smoothly right now anyway, right? And when I say right now, I mean last several years. I don't just mean I'm not... Yeah, it's been, it's been you know, certainly... A steady decline. It certainly needs help. Well, part of the decline has been because of the, you know, the, the right-wing party yes. refusing to do anything at all once it became you know, a majority in the Congress. They yeah, could yeah. get away with blocking everything that Obama wanted to do. So it's yeah. been a so very it's strange time. It's, a... it's been a very weird time and it's been a very extreme time. And I think that that extreme is what's been happening in Britain. And it just seems so strange that there's extremists in Britain. It just seems against that. Yeah, 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 yeah. England that I used to know. Yes, love. yeah. And, you know, the English part as opposed to the Irish, Welsh, yes. Scot- Northern Irish, Welsh and Scottish part. But out here, I guess, it is a country of extremes. And I think I can understand that people want to break the system a little bit and rattle the chains, and I understand that. But it's a shame that it has to be with somebody like Trump, who is just, I think, a very unpleasant, very possibly dangerous character. See, now I know, if I didn't already, now I know why the appeal of just going on the road and playing music. (laughs) uh, But it's true, though, isn't it? We need need that sort of happy distraction... Mm-hmm. In a way, more, more and more. Like we need that. We need to have those um, people coming to us that are truth tellers in in, mm-hmm. in an artistic sense. Yeah, and I, taking so us away from about it a little Trump bit. Is that he is the absolute opposite to a truth teller. That's right. Because it's That's every right. new day, there's a new line. He's a, he's a snake oil. It's a new line. Even his wife 
plagiarized Michelle Obama's speeches. It's a joke. Well, what do you think was with that? That has to have well, been a setup in some way, I guess way, a shock right? when she was talking about raising black children probably gave the game away. <laughs> no, but I watched a bit of that before, you know, a tiny, <laughs> tiny bit of her speech, and then I made the dis- even more disastrous decision to go out and see the Ghostbusters movie. And oh, then, the girl Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. Which is not good, and that doesn't mean and that doesn't mean I'm sexist and not a feminist. <laughs> it's just not a good film. <laughs> no need to apologise. If it's a bad film, it's a bad. Exactly. Film. Um, but then I came back to the news that of the plagiarism, and I'm thinking like um, that has to have been like either someone setting her up from within the camp, like a disgruntled, probably an unpaid worker, since it's I Trump's campaign, would be right? Great, wouldn't, it? wouldn't it? But or or they're actually doing it to court controversy, which is even you know, more no, despicable. That's... Like the idea that, well, this is actually going to get us coverage. When they when they pick up on this, they'll talk about it for days. Because they really is, they really are running on the whole sort of, no, um, you know, it's, it's better out. to be talked about than yeah. not talked about. Well, it's entirely outrageous, but I guess, you know, Trump has been stealing from everybody, so I guess at least yeah. she's just making a search to keep up with her husband if she's <laughs> exactly. going to be first lady. It's... it's <laughs> Almost a joke, you know. It would be funny, except for the it's, repercussions for America, that's right. because of the size and importance of America. The and world, the world, yeah, that's right. You know, so you can't really laugh about it. But you know, it's a dream for comedians and people who have those talk yeah, shows. Yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. start with a little kind of rounding up of the news. But a horror, really, such yeah. a shame. Yeah. And uh, it's so strange that the two, you know, the two main parties. Both of them have candidates that the parties don't like. Mm, mm. So it's just what level of dislike or utter hatred you're going to go for. And I guess we'll find out what America's made up of when the votes come in. Mm, mm. Scary idea. Because that goes back to France, so they're not having the best of times either. No, so. no Where do exactly. go, everyone? New yeah. Zealand, is it nice there? Not is as it? much as the last time you were there. Which was yeah. the first time, wasn't it? Not yeah. as much. Like um, we've we've got a bit of a dickhead in charge as well. So yeah, you know, kids in this well, country. it's just they get you know, it's the for, in his case, it's um, that he's been there too long, so he's too jaded, and he can you know, he's got no, there's no opposition that's worth taking him that's going to take his job. So okay. he's got he's got the contr- it's a control thing for him. He's, Vote for sweet men. Vote for sweet men. Oh, no men. one's ever going to do that. <laughs> you should know that. No one's ever going to do that. But listen, I wanted to say, is there anything else we need to that we've missed out? Because I'm looking around and think, and I'm remembering it was just over four years ago that um, you invited me up here for a cup of tea and I met you and we sat and had arguably a similar conversation in some sense. But you were the music and the book. You were you were still you were still working on the Cohen mm-hmm. book. You had to excuse yourself to I think you were basically, you know, putting together all the fiddly like index appendices type photo oh, credit things. I think you were in the, in that sort of in the post production phase of writing. And, the yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So you were in that. So since then, I'm you've, on that fight. So the book is exactly how I wrote it, since, not how they wanted it. Since then, the books come out. You've we we reconnected in New Zealand. You ended up staying the night at our house because you got mm-hmm. your flights. Well, someone got your flights wrong, <laughs> and then we and then we met up in Sydney and went to Craftwork. Yeah. Which was which was a pretty awesome concert. Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, and then um, and then I've really just been following what you've been up to on Facebook, but uh, as everyone does with everyone. But it's been it's been fascinating seeing all of the things you've been up to the last few years, and and, and thanks heaps for for having a big chat. I was just anything that I could think of there is probably may not even be worth talking about, but somehow that 
uh, I seem to have been doing different things but about Bob Johnston, who was oh, uh, yeah. Bob Dylan and everybody else's producer. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, was it he spoke at his memorial? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Past Ireland. yeah. The year before that, when he was still quite ill, I was on stage with Charlie Daniels and some people. Oh, that's there, right, yeah. Country music yeah, 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 yeah. Talking about him, you know, yeah. his influence on confusing sort of or bringing together a lot of people and Nashville people so I guess that was probably well, my big Americana highlight yeah. previously I guess my big Americana highlight had been interviewing Johnny Cash just before he yeah, died that's right. yeah, yeah, so yeah. that would have been the big big one on that but it's a, this is the Bob Johnston thing I guess this is quite an interesting this thing. is part of that thing you were saying of like even if it was only a 300 or whatever 600 word article you might talk to someone for half an hour or more it's it's that kind of knowledge that you've built up mm-hmm. over the years and as well as connections that um that brings you to the table for those sorts of discussions mm-hmm. isn't it that you know then so, yeah, you need you someone to go and yeah. talk about if, if not a eulogy type thing or even just interviewing a person on stage it's you know you can it's all that stuff that you have that other people haven't I've had. been doing quite a few of those things lately. Yeah. Either being interviewed on stage or yeah. interviewing, and it was interesting, like, two great contrasts. Because I, was mm. inter- I was interviewing Lita Ford on stage yes. about her book. For her book, yeah, yeah. And uh, that was a curious thing, you know, sitting there talking to I her. haven't read her book yet, but I do want it's, to, um, and I feel it will be okay. It's... Well, it's certainly kiss and tell. You yeah. know, it's it's got a lot of sex in it, a lot of mm. drugs in it, and a lot of rock and roll in it. So, it you know, it does a trick. It she's. But what was the thing that interested me that though there was a lot of sex in it, what stayed with me was actually the sexism. Right. She never kind of really mentioned it as such. Yeah. She kind of occasionally did that. You know, there couldn't be such a thing as a girl guitar player or a lead singer dash guitar player in rock. But generally, it was like the undercurrent, yeah. you know, reading between the lines of, of quite what you had to go through if you were mm, a woman, mm. kind of in rock. And I guess she and I came up at the same time. The yeah, runaways yeah, 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 started right. a career the same year that I started my career, if you want to call it that, as a rock writer. Mm. And so, even though she and I only really we did interviews, but we weren't close friends or anything. Mm, mm. We were we just passed mm. in the night every now and then or in the day. I kind of was very interested to read this book and see what you know how things went, and it's kind of sad in a way. You know, it's mm. got a lot of exciting wild stories that people are going to get into. But mm. to me, I was left with a bit of a bitter I taste. I interviewed um, the lead singer, Sherry Curry, was oh, yeah. out in New Zealand recently, mm-hmm. and I didn't see the shows. I, I hear they're a bit of a train wreck actually. The shows, mm-hmm. but. Um, she, while she was very nice to talk to, she seemed to have a very. Um, I didn't end up writing up the story because I felt she had a. Everyone else was going to write the same thing. It was just going to be a, a puff piece of, you know, Survivor mm-hmm, yeah. out there playing the songs. And, you know, she'd even sort of forgiven Kim Fowley and wanted to talk all about how he was a saint and actually misunderstood. And I found it to be a very odd narrative that she was peddling. It's funny actually that Lita was almost talking up um, Kim Fowler mm. too. Um, it's a strange thing now yeah. that, that maybe because he's dead and you know yeah, yeah, people yeah. don't want to talk ill of the dead. I would talk ill of him. Yeah. I think he was a nasty piece of work, and I think he got a lot much much more glory than he really deserved. You know, mm. he did a couple of songs. He was a man in the music business, 
But I don't think much of him. I found him very unpleasant. I yes. knew him personally. And, um, yeah, it's almost like people are, I mean, no one's made this comparison, but it's almost like people want to say that he was a generation's version of like a Phil Spector type, you know, and it's like, there's, to me, it's no way. No, way. It's no like I mean, he did like picking up, the, you know, he had all sorts of different girl bands after, and maybe yeah. even before The Runaways. I remember only came in at The Runaways time. Mm. And there would always be, you know, some girls with sort of, you know, and their names would be like kind of Jenny and the Jennets or something. Mm, I'm just mm. making that up. And if there is a group with that name, I apologise. And there'd be some girls that were wearing leopard skin mini suit girls mm. or thongs and something. And, you know, he'd be having sex with them on the kitchen in his sleazy apartment. Mm, you know, it was mm. part of the, the kind of casting couch, or in his case, kitchen table approach to, to being in bands. And I never liked him at all. He had a he had a, he was a character. That was one thing I guess that was interesting in the way that Spectre was. I remember that he used to have this guy. I think it was a guy who I knew at least he worked with him, who had been an ex-con. It was kind of a sweet kid who used to drive him everywhere because Kim didn't drive, and mm. it was strange, you know, mm. in LA. I think he couldn't drive. Maybe he was afraid of cars. I don't know. And this guy would, like, announce who he was when he walked into the room. And it would be almost like nowadays it would be in Wikipedia, the opening paragraph. Mm. He was sort of really pre-internet version of, of, you know, the mm. writer of this, the producer of this, the great this. And then Kim would come in. And he was just a very peculiar character, much too tall and much too long limbs, like the guy in Eyes Without a Face or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the hills have eyes, mm. that's the one. Mm. Not Eyes Without a Face, the hills have eyes. <laughs> Maybe that's got a weird character. <laughs> so I, you know, I had a lot of dealings with him, and I yeah. found him very sexist and yeah. very self-important and narcissistic, and he wasn't mm. my cup of tea at all. So if they want to, you know, you like how good he was, really, then that's fine. Well, it might be. A, I got the feeling with um, Sharia was a sort of a. Christian forgiveness kind of tale was that she Jackie, was... Was it Jackie, the girl from the band, who yes. actually came public about yes. him raping Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and so, so she sort of denounced yeah. that and went, no, you know, she's got the yeah. story wrong and that didn't happen like that and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I, I think, I don't know, there's some murky stuff there. But I just, yeah. I found I found talking to her pleasant but kind of disingenuous, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I think that probably sums up quite a few interviews that happened yeah, in that. In that, that happens. That they've realm. got a story to tell and they want yeah. that story, even though we all know it. And I just sort of thought every other publication that is going to want to promote the show and run the story is going to run some mm. version of that story, so I'm just going to sit out on that. But I found that, yeah, that just happened mm. a couple of months ago and I found that... Kind of interesting. Yeah, what I always found interesting was that the girl groups almost invariably had a man behind them. Yeah. And that was always some sort of sort of shock and horror to me, I suppose. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to work out who the man behind and my you, solo career is. <laughs> did you get did you get um the sort of nasty eyeball from some of them, like the girls, like you're encroaching on our oh it's another you know, like in that era you're another woman and this is our time to shine in our space or were they actually even from girl bands yeah 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 um, yeah or were you not like really. not really I mean 
I, or I you welcome in like an oh cool you know or is it just indifference just to, the runaways weren't a very welcoming no. band they weren't a very happy band mm. you know they, they never did anything more than just growl I think that Sandy and Jackie were the only ones who actually knew how to smile to the best of my knowledge yeah. or memory and uh, I think the next girl group that I interviewed was girls school and they were right. adorable yeah, you yeah. know they were kind of you know the mascots of yeah. your, you know the sort of compadres of motorhead and yeah. so they were just lovely mm. so you know you didn't get anything at all from them that way and I never got that from women singers if you interviewed Joni Mitchell she wasn't thinking are you going to grab my boys you know they know yeah. their power they yeah, know yeah. their celebrity yeah. you know yeah. they yeah. know what they can get yeah. so no I didn't sense that not really. No. Maybe go writers might not might have been a bit odd, mm, you know, because mm. there was so few of us, mm. and so maybe they might have been a bit more competitive. But yeah. I don't know. I don't remember. I was on my own in my little island out in LA. I mean, not literally an island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you yeah. know, I was away from a, a lot of the others, so mm. I kind of was sort of in a little kind of bubble in a sense, an island and a bubble. I'm moving this metaphor in all <laughs> sorts of areas now, and. Uh, so it just well, didn't touch me, you know. That was my kingdom. We'll I'm, refer I was to the your girl there. Bubble Island will be your space. <laughs> Bubble Island. That's in the um, next album. Because yeah, like you were, you would have been, oh, you would have been away from yeah the Julie Birchall types when they mm. were carving their, you know, like music. Nice Melody maker. Yes. And she liked the heavy rock too. You know, I hardly ever. Yeah. You know, I was away. So yeah, you wouldn't have really crossed paths. Yeah. So. Never really saw her much. Barbara Sharon had been a writer before she became a mm. PR. Mm. You know, you got to see some of them, but mm. just not that many. You know, there mm. was it was really boys. Mm. And and you must be the just about the most long-serving. Then I'm the lifer, yeah. I don't absolutely, know yeah, because they all. Must be a I mean, not many people think of. Julie, well, I was just going to say not many people think of Julie Virtual, but like not many people think of her as rock a rock writer. People know it's there. They know the NME credentials in her CV, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like she's she seems to me now, I mean, that's how I knew her because I read that stuff, but it seems to me now she's known for whatever else she's gone on and done. Usually fuck people off. Yeah, um, she was you know, always good with a column. Bless and, her and, heart. Then, and then, you yeah, need exactly. someone for that. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You need somebody to do that. But you know, a lot of the, the women either, you know, some went to the tabloid papers mm. or the newspapers because they actually paid real money. Yeah. But they did somewhat stifle your creativity a little bit and, you know, your individuality. Uh, but they, so they did that. Others went off and took a bit of time off to have families mm. who do mm. sensible things mm. you, with their lives, mm. you know. And I just, just stuck out. So one way or another, didn't they, take those diversions. One way or another, they gave up the rock and roll dream. My articles you. are my babies. There's about ten million um, <laughs> ironic quotes around that too. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's I didn't stop and and decide on a real life, you know. It would be hard to have perspective on a real life in some sense, I suppose, when you are being not only whisked around the place. But even if you're staying still and people are coming to you, you're meeting these people who are telling you that their life is... Even if their life doesn't seem that much more interesting than yours, they've got something about them that's magnetic, right? Like yeah. they, they have a magnetism that you're clearly mm-hmm. bouncing off and drawn to. And, yeah. 
Um, I mean, it's not like it was my entire existence. Mm, you know, mm. I used, usually went home to a guy mm, 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 <laughs> and had an existence you mm. know, that involved really boring things like cooking and watching the telly. You know, but you also stepped out at night to shows. Oh yeah, you know, I forgot about that. Part. That's a, you know, <laughs> whether you were commenting on them or not, maybe you'd done the interview mm. before the show, maybe you're doing the interview after, like. Mm-hmm. There was also that, so never, you know, it's probably more a nine to five now than it's ever been, and it's obviously yes. still not really a nine to five. It's true. I mean, I don't go yeah. to as many shows as I used mm. to, um, partly from pe- preference, really, because I don't. I think I've seen some of these people at their best, and yeah. fairly recently, I went to see the reunion Fleetwood Mac, but it was on these awful arenas, you know, sports mm. arenas, and they just suck the life out of it, don't they? They're yeah, just... you're kind of starving, hungry, and all they have is garlic fry fries for fifteen dollars, yeah. and you know, it, you just kind of feel miserable and cheated somehow. And it's hard so, not to feel. I always feel a bit. Um, Oh, what's the word? Elitist or something, I suppose, in saying this. But, uh, you know, there's a certain class of fan that attends the Giant Stadium show where, you know, they're sort of the greatest hits fan. And whilst that's fine, mm-hmm. I just sort of like, I would rather enjoy. I like being part of a kind of educated audience mm-hmm. that's there to, you know, they don't have to have their arms folded and not be enjoying it. But I like people that, quite the opposite usually, but I like people who are aware of what they're seeing. I mean, I'll go and see Eric Clapton play in Hawke's Bay and people were upset that he didn't play Tears in Heaven. It's like, fuck, I would have been upset if he did. You know, <laughs> like, why would you want to hear that song? Ever. Ever. In your whole life. That's right, ever. Like, yeah. why would you... People were, and they were only happy when he played Wonderful Tonight, which is also mm. ghastly, you know. No, and, yeah, it's hard. And actually, to chip the devil maybe choose between either of those two. Look, and I saw Eric, this, I'm talking about Eric Clapton nearly 10 years ago when he actually had um, Derek Truck still in his band and, you know, Doyle Bramall, and it was actually a pretty good band. And they played half of the Layla album. It was actually a pretty good show for as boring as he often is but you know the thing is that I don't get snobby about gigs and arena gigs can be wonderful yeah. so if that's the only time that you can see someone's music you like live then go. you go for it yeah yeah you exactly know, I'm just a bit you know a bit more sort of selfish you, you about can, it you can be selective you know you've... I've been lucky and I get good seats usually mm. for free you mm. know it's part of the job but it's not usually my favourite experience to see see artists in there but I understand that I mean Leonard Cohen was playing mostly really big places you know welcome mm. to the other side of intimacy as yeah. he used to say from the stage but people would enjoy that experience and I think also enjoy the the mass of people being around mm. so many people who love that person mm. yeah well the time I saw um, Leonard Cohen the first time um, I've seen him twice uh, a couple of years apart or a year apart but the very first time it was hard not to get caught up in um, so many things about that show but but particularly being in a room of that many people that clearly felt elated because you know we didn't think we were going to see them yeah. ever well I see know? that has its own experience but I prefer like small kind of places mm, you know mm, mm. kind of clubs and nowadays you know it's because it's the only way that these sort of middle to lower level bands can make money is that you pay you pay, you pay to go in, you don't get the freebies anymore because, yeah. you know, it's not fair money. People seem to be perpetually on tour to to make bank, you know, to yeah, get... Yeah, because nobody sells yeah. any albums anymore. They, so know, that diminishes it somewhat for me. Like, it's great, it's great to think of other people getting to see the show. Like, mm-hmm. I remember, for me, I, I didn't really want to see... 
practically the same Leonard Cohen show a second time. Mm-hmm. But whenever, whenever anyone asked me, oh, you're going to Leonard Cohen again, when he came a third time, I said, not for me this time, but shit, if you haven't seen him, yeah, go ahead. get there. Like, it's going to be great, but I don't need to see him three times yeah. in the same city, in the same venue. See, I would mm-hmm. go and see him if, if I was overseas somewhere and he happened to be playing. I'd like to see him in another okay. venue. You know, yeah, I saw that him sort of several thing. different places. Yeah, you so must have seen him. Yeah. Even Coachella Festival, yeah, which was yeah. quite a funny thing. And obviously a lot of times before as well, yeah. being so much older. Yeah, yeah. Being a fan for so long. But you know, you, you know exactly what I'm saying. There's a different, there's a different element to seeing, you know, music in another city and another oh, yeah. venue and another place yeah. that you don't usually go to. Yeah. So, but in the past, you're right. I mean, I would go mm. to gigs four or five times a week. You know? Yeah, yeah. Just go. Why not? That was it. So, and so you want a sort of very different timetable to most of humanity. Yeah. And mostly, I still live like that. You know, I'm still a late night person. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you got those tapes to listen to and. You got Terry Reid's voice in your ear. Yeah, you know, and I just, you know, still like the night. You know, that's never going to change with me. I still like the night. I I feel like that. Full of excitement. I feel that like that's a a nearly natural state Mm -hmm. for writers. You know, being a little bit nocturnal. Yeah, there's always these stories of there's always these stories of writers that have trained themselves to get up at six in the morning and write for a few hours and go off and do a day job. Yeah, yeah, but there's also like people that come home from their real job and work at night mm. or they're people, yeah, put the kids to bed and work or they just clear their mm. thoughts or they spend all day procrastinating and then yeah. get the deadline and go for it. You know, I, I sort of yeah. feel like the night... I'm trying to train myself to not stay up all night now because I used to and I, I sort of get up really early now. I try to do a 5 a.m. Mm. Get up and hit it. There is a five a.m. There is. I used to. I'm. I'm. It's not like Leonard Cohen. I'm approaching it from the other side now. Finally, I used to. It used to be bedtime. Now it's. I couldn't even collect my thoughts till about eleven in the morning. Really. (laughs) Now, see, I have to because I've got a little soldier running the running the joint who gets up a couple of hours after. That's fair enough. Um, if I have to catch a plane, I'll do it. So you're basically catching a plane every, every day. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To know That's a bit tough. To, to, to my computer. <laughs> to the adulthood of your child. <laughs> um, well, yeah, no, it's been a great pleasure talking to you as always. And, you and thank you for um, for inviting me to your home to do this. And, and um, yeah, it's nice to, nice to know that there's going to be plenty more words from you. There's going to be at least one more book. Yeah, At least sorry, one I can't more. tell you who it is right now. No, it's going to be uh, exciting for us all when the news um, drops, but there's going to be one more book and one more album. And definitely then, another and then, album. And then one more... Um, short story. Yeah, one more, one more book, fiction book. It's kind of like the short stories are turning out to be melancholy, like the songs, so it's strange. That's my new mode, I think. <laughs> you know, I'm just heading towards inevitable doom. <laughs> well, that's, that's the political soundtrack. Permeating, isn't it? There you go. I'll have to. Do, I, I was <laughs> selling my, my my selling point for the album was that dogs would sleep when it was on. Babies would sleep when it was on. People who'd never slept before would, would sleep. It was it was very good soporific. Maybe you should try and get Trump to sleep with this one. <laughs> maybe, maybe with some fishes. <laughs> now you're talking. This could be it. This lure somewhere near a very dark, empty, open space with a large hole in the ground, and maybe he'll fall asleep. Sunlight burns your lips and-
Hey.